Hello everybody, just a quick note that I had to cut this chapter in two because it was ending up to be way too long given the intensity of the information. So um, chapter two will be in two parts. I didn't realize this until after I started editing. So um, you might hear allusions throughout the podcast that we're gonna talk about the whole chapter. That is incorrect. We are gonna go through the developmental processes and then that will be it for today. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the It's a Brain Thing podcast. Today, we are continuing our second in a series of our book club on Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. I hope that you were able to listen to our last episode. If not, it probably is a good idea that you you listen to the book club episodes in order. It will not necessarily be that every episode, you know, for the next few will be a book club episode. But if if you're really wanting to listen to these in particular, I would suggest listening to them in order personally. But of course, you know, sometimes people are just joining us. So you guys were able to think about what we talked about last week, especially in terms of do you have anything in place to connect with your child each day? And does every adult in the household or, you know, in, in, in their life have that ability? If not, or if that's a struggle, we talked about how that's going to be a big part of the beginning steps and moving forward when it comes to the kids with the behaviors that we talk about both on this podcast and in the book Beyond Behaviors. Before I get started with chapter two, I just want to go over a few things. We are talking about trauma and some intensity in various different ways. I'm going to mention a car accident at some point. So this might be something that for some people, depending on how you're doing right now with COVID, it can be difficult. And I also just want to say that I hope everybody is hanging in there. I encourage a lot of adjusting expectations during this time. The things that are causing intense stress, if we can pinpoint them, you know, like, so if school is what is causing the friction right now, let's maybe not do school. I think we're at that point with a lot of kids in terms of how they are coping due to their lack of skills and other issues, including, you know, trauma and sensory issues that we're going to be talking about today. It's hard. It's hard for everybody. And then, of course, to parent them, I also am thinking about you and how difficult it must be. And just a quick reminder that nothing I'm talking about in these episodes are endorsed by Dr. Delahook. This is all me and how I see what she's writing through my lens, and I hope that's helpful for people. We start chapter two with an opening scene with Ronaldo, and he has a lot of impulsive behaviors. And I can definitely picture this type of kid. Some of you will have this type of kid. He hits peers. He probably does it the, the second after somebody, an adult, corrects him and says, don't do that, please. He'll probably just do it again. If he's walking near peers in the hall, he, he can't seem to resist reaching out and hitting them. Like, that's the kind of kid that I'm picturing and a lot of kids that I, I know that are represented by the parents listening to this podcast. 
And so essentially what the team was wanting him to do, what the adults were expecting him to do, was to use his words instead of interacting physically, but he didn't. And so we're going to continue to explore the question of why is it that so many of our responses are not working with these kids? And it has to do with meeting them where they're at on their developmental process. And that's pretty much what our chapter is about today are these developmental processes. Dr. Delahook tells us, quote, Ronaldo didn't yet have the developmental capacity to use words to represent sensations, ideas, or feelings. Children don't acquire that ability by a specific age. It surfaces only after they acquire the many other skills that lead up to it. Those are the kind of words that make me swoon. The other skills that lead up to it. Skills that make up other skills. That's exactly how I view a lot of what I do and what I'm just interested in learning more about. And that is what Dr. Delahook is indicating is how we help children through not just cognitive issues, which is what I tend to focus on, but on these issues of developmental processes in the social, emotional, and as we will learn, and in, in just feelings of safety on, in those processes and, and how they all interact with each other. And early on, I want to say, and, and Dr. Delahook does mention this, but we are talking about the brain in very simple terms. And the terms that we're going to be using today, like top-down thinking or bottom-up thinking, they sound very this or that, and it is much more complicated than that. And just looking at this idea of skills being built up from other skills, that's exactly what I focus on in my strategies with families, again, on that cognitive level. And I, I really do believe that not only kids with who have FASDs or adults with FASDs, but people of all ages with various different developmental disabilities are actually a lot more capable of learning and continuing to learn before maybe people think they've plateaued if we're willing to truly individualize how we present information and how we allow them to learn and and use that knowledge not that I'm saying that it's easy that I have an answer but I just feel like there's a point where the systems that are in place are not doing what we know they need to do to teach them things and so instead of looking at the person themselves as being unable to learn, we, we need to continue to look at how they actually learn. And we don't do this. And so that's where that feeling of them hitting some kind of plateau in their learning happens. Or maybe somebody turns 21 and they've aged out of the educational system. And so people think all they should now be focused on is, is nothing academic, but just life skills. And, you know, that's a complicated issue in of itself. And I'm not an academic expert in this, but someday I'm going to hopefully have enough of the right words and the references to go into more detail of how skills build up. But, but as I've studied executive functioning, it really does look to me like something simply can't happen without one or more base skills, like somewhat, maybe shakily, imperfectly in place. I've seen a lot of indications of that in, in my personal research. And this is not only true in like you have to have certain skills in order to even be able to start working on other skills. That's true not only in how our skills evolved. So when we think about our ancestors and how these evolved organism to organism, but also on our individual level. So you can't solve a problem, right? That's an executive functioning skill. You can't plan and problem solve without an attention span. 
and you can't ignore distractions without a degree of impulse control. And so we see that these different skills that we talk about cognitively literally build up from other skills to a certain degree. And spoiler alert, the very first skill is attention. And what we'll notice is what Dr. Delahook is going to bring up is a type of attention. And so just to reiterate, chapter two is talking about the building up of these skills, not so much in the cognitive way, though it happens side by side, but in terms of child emotional development and safety. And in chapter one, Dr. Delahut gave us the first major reason why the traditional or intuitive doesn't work. And that's because we as the parent, professional, judge, journalist, other parent who's giving us a judgmental stare, we don't understand the ideology or the overall underlying reason for the behavior. And I've seen some people in the FASD community very quickly and confidently attribute something to FASD and pretty much everything, every challenge to FASD. And I, I think in some ways this is a strategy because we want to have a neurobehavior lens, which that term will mean something to those who listen to this podcast, hopefully. And we want to adjust expectations. And so we're thinking if it's FASD, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. So we, we may as well adjust and save ourselves the stress, which I'm totally fine that and I get that. But I don't agree that everything is, quote unquote, related to FASD or even if something can be, quote unquote, 100 percent. FASD, that doesn't mean that the only thing we can do then is just let go of an expectation or adjust an expectation. And this is coming from Nate, change your damn expectation sheets. And I was always puzzled by why I got that middle name, but it makes a lot of sense now. And Dr. Delahook starts us off on figuring out what's going on with the behavior by asking a simple question. Is the behavior's ideology or reason top down or bottom up? Or quote, in other words, is this purposeful, intentional misbehavior that's top down? Or does the behavior represent the child's developmental challenges and or reflexive responses to perceived threat? That's bottom up. Or is it a combination of both? Unquote. I kind of changed the quote there. And this is a question that I've always asked on a certain level, but not necessarily in the context of a child's ongoing emotional development. When I started off as a beginning professional, just learning about human behavior and cognitive skills, I made the assumption that a person who struggles with certain skills, such as, say, impulse control, is going to frequently engage in behaviors without thinking, right? So that a lot of these things that we attribute to being character flaws or intentional rudeness, like, say, interrupting somebody... Well, if we know that they have impulse control, let's view it as impulse control. And that kind of changes the whole vibe around the whole thing and maybe gives us something that we can do to be proactive. But even if you struggle with an executive functioning skill like impulse control, which I do as a person with ADHD, that doesn't mean that all of my impulsive behaviors are necessarily like a challenging behavior or negative. Like I have a lot of what people would say are irrelevant maybe in terms of, you know, a statement I might say or a joke I might make, but maybe the joke flies and everybody thinks it's funny, right? There's all there's all these things that being impulsive can also be other than the challenging aspect. But outside of those two things, what we're going to do with Dr. Delahook is look even deeper than the cognitive. And that's that word reflexive. Are these behaviors reflexive responses to perceived threat? So if you're having a reflexive internal response, you're going to have to have a significant amount of executive functioning quickly at the ready in order to 
regulate that, right? And that that would, I would assume, mean that you are an adult who has some skills, not the kids that we're talking about. So these are reflexive responses that are leading to these behaviors that they do not have the skills cognitively, both in terms of just their age as being, you know, being kids and maybe then other factors like fetal alcohol, they cannot regulate. They do not yet have those skills. And I want to be clear that the reflex responses that Dr. Delahook is talking about here are 100% always impulsive, right? But they stem from a person's individual brain development and how their brain had to adapt to an environment or situation, not just a simple cognitive skill impulse like we talked about. So these behaviors are not simply due to a lack of cognitive skill access, which has traditionally been my frame of mind, but rather that the behaviors are in place because at one point they helped the person to survive or the brain thought that they would help the person to survive based upon what was going on. And so we want to remember some of the terms that we talked about last week, such as neuroception. That's our brain's assessment process or ability, and it's constantly happening to assess, am I safe right now? And if I'm in an actual situation with danger, then my neuroception will go into unsafe neuroception. And if I'm in a situation that is safe, then I will have safe neuroception. So you have safe and unsafe. Those are the kind of the two that you can be in. And then we learn that there's this thing called faulty neuroception. So that is unsafe neuroception, but it is in a situation where there is not actual danger. So neuroception is the ability itself. Safe or unsafe is one of the two overall modes that somebody can be feeling. And faulty is when you are feeling unsafe neuroception, but at a time when you essentially should not be feeling it or when there's no actual stressor. And when I say to survive, this is the brain having these behaviors start to happen to help the person survive death or intense injury. We literally mean survival. That is what the brain is only able to operate on that early in development. So if these reflexive, unintentional responses and behaviors happened because of a person's individual situation, it makes sense that the first thing that we have to do in order to determine if their behavior is top-down versus bottom-up is to, quote, understand the child's social and emotional development. Let's stop and think about that for a moment. If anyone is going to be able to determine if a behavior is quote, top-down versus bottom-up, they need to, quote, understand the child's, the individual child's, social-emotional development. And so I want us to think about how many adults in your child's life who are tasked with, in the moment, coming up with some kind of assessment of their behavior and responding to that assessment, how many of them are actually familiar with the social-emotional history and specific development of your child. And not just that they have an FASD or some kind of disability, but the details of their history. How many would even be willing or able to take the time to sit and understand that? Some would, of course, but a lot of people wouldn't. They don't necessarily think that it matters and they don't understand that it does. And we're talking on a neuroscientific basis here. Maybe I'm taking this in a slightly extreme direction, but this suggests to me that we can't expect any adult who's unfamiliar with certain elements of our child's emotional development or history to be able to even get close to accurately assessing their reflexive bottom-up behaviors. And perhaps this is the reason why it's so stressful for the kids who can't immediately comply or give the appearance that they're complying 
their nervous systems are telling them in this moment that they should be fighting or resisting or opposing or fleeing while the adult who is quote-unquote in authority over them is getting snippy because Vanessa said the word shit. But she's saying the word shit out of this fight-flight instinct that she's having. So in addition to the intellectual knowledge of a child's personal development and their history and how that could impact them, Dr. Delahook is now going to give us the second step into how we figure out if a behavior is top-down or bottom-up. And that is, quote, we need to be able to read a child's cues in the moment that help reveal what underlies the behavior. Another quote, top-down thinking develops over time with connections in the prefrontal cortex, the region known as the brain's executive center. The prefrontal cortex is essential to plan and direct motor, cognitive, affective, and social behaviors, unquote. And so that's what top-down thinking is. And so now the question is, how does it develop? And so what's happening is that brain development over time is, quote, supported by nurturing and attentive relationships, which, quote, allow us to develop intentional control, to learn, to reflect, to plan, and to pursue long-term goals. Yeah, and I, I really have nothing to add to that. Yes, right? If, if you've listened to this podcast, you'll know that when anyone gets upset or dysregulated, our executive functioning abilities immediately drop. And Dr. Delahook describes this on page 29 as top-down thinking, being, quote, hijacked at any moment by the lower, survival-based, instinctual brain when one experiences threat or danger, as we discovered in the previous chapter, unquote. So our executive functioning is great, but it really is limited. And so the brain assures that we're safe by initiating a set of neurological and physiological responses that can easily take over our executive functioning. It takes over everything. And so, for example, if you're near a road and your brain sees an out-of-control car coming towards you, it's going to likely send you into flight mode, which is unsafe neuroception, and then that sends me into uh, fight or flight or freeze, as we'll learn. Um, if you see a car that's maybe going out of control, but you're not particularly near it, your brain is probably going to hold you there. You're going to be in this kind of frozen mode until it assesses that it's now safe enough for your executive functioning skills to kind of return and take over. And so, you know, it will switch states as it's making this assessment. But as long as you're in imminent danger or near imminent danger, you can't count on your executive functioning skills to assess what's going on, to make a calculation, to initiate a plan, all while accounting for errors um, when we're talking about literal split-second moments. So these bottom-up survival instincts are sloppy and they're a hindrance much of the time, especially in our lives, That you know, people listening to this podcast, but they have been getting the job done longer, the job of survival longer, much longer than the executive functioning system. And Dr. Delahook discusses the disconnect that there are in a lot of disciplines like psychology and mental health between the brain and the body. And the truth is you can't separate the two. And early in life especially, emotions aren't felt with concrete thoughts of, oh, gee, I'm angry right now. I better start a regulating. But lots of quick moving moments that often from the child's perspective seem to be over before they start. To me, this really describes all kids until they develop some of those more advanced executive functioning and regulation skills. Dr. Delahook then quotes Dr. Stephen Porges, and he's the scientist who created polyvagal theory. Quote, 
This dynamic, bio-directional communication between brain structures and bodily organs influences mental state, biases perception of the environment, and prepares the individual to be either welcome or defensive of others. This is what polyvagal theory is. It's the idea that there is this brain and body connection. So again, I'm going to do that quote again because I think it's really important. Quote, this dynamic biodirectional communication between brain structures and bodily organs influences mental state, biases perception of the environment, and prepares the individual to be either welcome or defensive of others. Unquote. That was Dr. Stephen Porges. So our brain structures and bodily organs are in a two-way, what he called a biodirectional communication via our nervous system, right? That's how it happens. And our nervous system is, of course, the brain and all of the neurons that go throughout our body that send and receive messages. And the communication using neurons, right, sending messages between the brain and every area of the body, that's happening extremely early in the womb, right, on an individual level. And with each stress, the brain and the body are learning to adapt. And if there's going to be a lot of stressors after a child is born, and these can include things like ongoing neglect, abuse, you know, other adverse childhood experiences, the brain and body adapt, right? And that's because they are in continual communication with each other. And the brain can't just do any kind of adaptation without involving the body, right? Just being able to, to realize on some level something is not safe doesn't help it. It has to be able to control and change the body. And this is, again, with every encounter, every stress, which for some kids is ongoing dozens and dozens of times per day, even in these early days of life. And again, these adaptations are driven by systems that are not concerned about our child's happiness or our household harmony or with them being respectful to an old school teacher. Their only concern is with increasing the chances of your child surviving. It's just about survival. I also want to take a moment and note what Dr. Porges says about that brain-body communication. He said, quote, it biases the perception of the environment. And this is applicable in a lot of different ways and, and things that we talk about on this podcast. But I want us to consider that if you're working with a child who has a history of trauma or medical issues or a history of overstimulation or even just a history of ongoing stress for whatever reason, we have to remember that their perception, their picture of reality is going to be influenced by all of these stressors because they're in that state of having to adapt to them. And so that will, like Dr. Porges says, bias their perception of the environment. So when they say something like, quit yelling at me, saying I'm not yelling really completely misses the point because their perception is one of danger. And because their perception is one of danger, it's going to be biased by the need to survive. And so your slightly firm tone, and that's assuming that you're not actually yelling at them, is being interpreted by the brain incorrectly, but it's being seen as bigger than it is. And you cannot argue with a person's perception, especially in the moment. People tend to trust their perceptions, even though, given what we know about how imperfect our brains are, nobody really should. And I want you to think about how you typically respond in those situations. Again, the 
either the child says, you always yell at me. Maybe you're trying to be proactive and they're saying, you yell at me and you and you don't, right? And so you don't know how to respond to that because it seems to not be an actual issue. So I want you to think about how you respond. And most parents I talk to already admit that they do too much talking in the moment. And that's a good thing to recognize about yourself, right? If, if you do too much talking, it's good that you know that versus thinking that you're fine, but actually you do too much talking. So we want to remember that there is an element of trauma in relationship to the potentially uh, too high of a cognitive demand because we are essentially triggering some kind of stress. They will go into the same kind of response. This is also, uh, I believe anyway, why it's not necessarily a negative situation that triggers kids into these states, but that other cues, even during times where they're having fun, they are actually starting to feel the exact same thing. It's just in a completely different context. So we're going to get to more practical steps about how to help children when they're escalated. But right now, Dr. Delahook is still laying a foundation for why this is all happening for us. So going back to the chapter's opening kiddo, who was named Ronaldo, we see that the adults in his life had an unreasonable expectation of him, and that was based on where he was at developmentally. Quote, As much as we would like our children to be able to use their words and exert control over their own behavior, none of us is born with that ability. Unquote. And that was page 31. And now I'm going to quote a little bit at length here because I think this is really important. This is just, again, um, if, if you're if you're struggling to follow along with how exactly this is all happening on that neurological level, here's a good summary. Quote, in order to survive, the baby needs to breathe and, in short order, instinctively coordinate how to suck, swallow, and breathe at the same time. If the baby is healthy, these three things happen quite naturally. In the hours, days, weeks, and months that follow, if these basic abilities develop properly, and if her needs are properly met by an attentive caregiver, the baby experiences a sense of calm, alert attention to the world around her, unquote. And so, as we'll continue to see, this is when the infant experiences stress, when they're experiencing either the medical or neglect or abuse issues, and the brain begins to make neurological changes to adapt. We're gonna talk about developmental processes next, but first I have something else to talk to you about. Hi everyone, Nate here. Did you know that I have a Patreon page? That means that if you enjoy the free content that I produce for families and professionals all over the world and you want to support it, you can pledge as little as $2 per month. I appreciate any support you can give and totally understand that we are in hard times and that financial support is not in the cards for everybody right now. If you are able and willing to throw a few bucks per month my way, please visit patreon.com slash cognitive supports. That's patreon.com slash c-o-g-n-i-t-i-v-e supports. Just like my current patrons, Kristen, Sandra, Zach, Karen, Linda, Dana, Jackie, Deborah, Kaylee, and Nancy. A special thanks to them for their continued interest and support of my work, and thanks to everyone else who leaves positive reviews or sends me feedback. It's truly a privilege to produce content for you, and I hope that you find it helpful. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you, me. That was great. Um, We're back and we are going to continue our look into chapter two and being introduced to this concept of 
developmental processes. So a few things to think about in terms of the overall concept of what a developmental process is. Quote, children cycle through capabilities in these processes through the complex interaction between their emotional and physiological regulation and their interaction with the relational and physical environment. Unquote. That was page 33. So I'm just going to, again, because that was a lot of information, I'm going to read it again a little bit slower and emphasize some things. Quote, children cycle through capabilities in these processes through their complex interaction between their emotional and physiological regulation and their interaction with the relational and physical environment, unquote. We already know that while Dr. Delahook is laying out these developmental processes neatly for us to understand, that all of this is very simplified and it's very individualized. Quote, each child encounters the same developmental processes, but they are influenced by many other processes. That's why it's important to track the child's progress in real time so we can pinpoint the best way to support the child. And since relationships are the driving force of a child's social and emotional development, adults need to track our own progress as well. Unquote. 34. Absolutely. Maybe some of you don't have very much specific information about your child's early life, and that's okay, because you're still going to get an idea for where they're at based upon what you read in the book. And Dr. Delahook will continue to give us some specific outward physical signs or behaviors that are going to clue us in to how they're regulating and dysregulating, which again gives us further insight into which developmental process um, we should be working with them at. And she uses the illustration of a house, which is great. Um, you'll see a lot of worksheets in the book that are going to help walk you through these various processes. And the, we go from like foundation and wiring to things that are more decorative and more advanced. So, quote, the foundation of a child's social emotional house can be solid, flimsy, or something in between. And it's always changing as the child reacts to the demands of the environment, unquote, on page 34. So let's go through each of these processes and what it means. So these are something that we will all ideally go through, but can be very easily interrupted. And so we're trying to assess first by going through this is where is my kid at in terms of their abilities, right? So process one is regulation and attention. And this is typically happening the first days of life. We're talking about infants here. We're not talking about two or three-year-olds. So what does it mean to meet the standards of process one? So an infant would be able to be calm and to be alert to what is going on around them. So having some kind of attention, it, it is different than what we would think of as an attention span, but it is kind of monitoring, right? And then and having the attention be drawn to different things going on in the environment. It is being able to be calm on a physiological way and of course having a neuroception of safety. This for a lot of my clients is where we're at. They have never in their life been able to maintain a state of calmness and alertness. Rather, they are always dysregulated, maybe emotionally, maybe on a sensory level, maybe on a medical level, but there has always been something that has made that calmness and soothingness be something that can even really be achieved. And attention at this level, I mentioned it's a little bit different, but it is also a foundation for the more advanced executive functioning that we are going to develop later. 
behavior, which again is what we think of as our intentional attention span. The baby isn't choosing at this level. It is just allowing its attention to move to whatever is going on in the environment. And that is where the brain picks up on patterns and starts to learn things. It's amazing. Then we have process two, which is engagement and relating. We're still talking about infants if we're thinking of a quote-unquote typical developmental pathway here with no stressors becoming obstacles. So process two is called engagement and relating. This would be an infant being able to engage with others, so smiling, even noticing that we're there, taking an interest in us on some level, laughing when we laugh, and that there is a mutual enjoyment, right? So we are laughing with them. We are starting to engage, and that is triggering in the baby not only behaviors, but a sense of safety, because so far nothing seems to be stressing them out, and this is nice. And before even an intellectual understanding of who this person is, which is mom, dad, whoever, I like this person. Oftentimes we associate this with eye contact, but we want to keep in mind that a lot of kids who are neurodiverse, especially when we think of autism, they're not going to show eye contact, but that does not mean that they are not engaged in the same way. So we, we want to keep that in mind and be very careful in general when we talk about eye contact for many different reasons. Process three is purposeful emotional interactions. We are still pretty much talking about infants here, right? Now we have a rhythm and flow. There are There's predictability to our interactions, and we have back and forth communications, not, not with words, but with reading each other's mood. Smiling means happiness, and that triggers happiness, or gestures. We start pointing emotions and the baby looks to, to where we are going and we're giving and receiving verbal and nonverbal signals. Not verbal as in language technically, but in the sound of language as we, you know, when we talk to babies and, and, and teaching them these patterns of emotion and interaction, all in the context, of course, of safe neuroception. Process four is what's called shared problem solving. So this is a child's ability to communicate nonverbally. They're piecing together multiple back and forth interaction. They might start asking us about things. And so this is when uh, gestures and words are starting to be used in a combination of ways. They are pointing, you know, realize, oh, these interactions are all safe and positive continually realizing maybe a little bit of the context of previous interactions on that very basic level, and of course, all within the context of safe neuroception. Process five is creating symbols and using words and ideas. So it's no longer just physical gestures to communicate with us, but they're starting to use words, maybe symbols, technology, art to communicate ideas. If, if, if somebody has a disability where they don't speak, we would want to, of course, have something available there. There's many other ways that kids start learning to communicate, even if they do talk really well. There's just there's multiple different ways to communicate. And now they are at the beginning stages of linking how they're feeling and maybe a bodily state into an idea or what she calls a symbol. But that would be a word. So this is when they can say, ouch, that hurts. And they know what ouch means. This would be happy. I know what happy means. And I, instead of just experiencing it and loving it with you, I, I can actually identify that with you. And this is when, quote unquote, top down processing emerges and, and the patterns are being made more quickly. And so we'll start to see some pretty quick development and things. And that leads us into childhood 
developmental process six, which is emotional thinking and building bridges between ideas. This is where logic will, will start to build. And they're going to organize in their brains the difference between thoughts and actions. It's not just all a big experience of things happening or bodily sensations. They're going to organize and understand the difference between their own thoughts and ideas and those of others, which of course then builds the basis of I should learn skills to compromise or to cooperate operate and engage. They can have their own opinions about things and, and maybe even start to engage in debate. So those are the six developmental processes that there are worksheets for each one in Dr. Delahook's book. You can go through them. Um, I would recommend going through them again because I gave you a pretty quick introduction. And so knowing what these are and knowing, again, our child's personal history and what they've been through, now we're more easily able to determine if a behavior is top down or bottom up. Quote, when we're born, our brain's threat detection system is fully operational, but the parts of the brain that help us to plan, think, learn, and calm ourselves require neural connections built over time that eventually support the ability for top-down control. So if we determine that our child is currently in a developmental process that is either process one, two, three, or four, that's going to indicate, according to Dr. Delahook, that, quote, predominant bottom-up functioning is happening. And the last two, processes five and six, are going to show the emergence of top-down processing. Not that it's working perfectly, and so they should have known, but that now we can start to use maybe a few more complicated um, strategies. So if you can, you know, maybe you have a neurotypical child, if you can talk to them about something and they follow through on that later, that is perfect because they that's top down. The conversation is fine because they have the top down thinking to process the information, to regulate the information and to hold it in mind or to use a tool. Maybe they wrote it down to then meet that expectation. So I just want to give us the processes and their overall categories very quickly again as we continue to move through. Process one is regulation and attention. Process two is engagement and relating. Process three is purposeful emotional interactions. Process four is shared social problem solving. Process five is creating symbols and using words and ideas. And process six is emotional thinking and building bridges between ideas. And because these processes are changing and they're heavily influenced by so many factors, on page 48, Dr. Delahook is telling us that we have to always be asking in real time, where is this child at? And we want to go to the earliest area where they have, you know, so if, if it's process one, we need to ask ourselves, how do we meet these process one needs? Because they missed a lot of that, if not all of that. So we're starting from a foundation and building up. This is as opposed to trying things which demand either process five or process six. And even a lot of those, if, if we're just in the earliest stages of process six, are still not going to be very effective in my opinion. So timeouts, punishments, making promises not to do it again, none of that addresses any of the physiological responses that this child might be having based upon lack of development through the processes. Dr. Delahook then gives us a personal example of when her daughter was refusing to do homework. And instead of trying to deal with that surface level behavior 
or what we call the won't, the the I'm not going to do this, that presentation of behavior. She just sat on her daughter's floor. You know, she was just quiet and she was just there with her. And she talks about how that happened. And she did this to establish the connection that had been missing between the two of them. So it was just connection. And after a few minutes of just connecting and being near each other, her daughter picked up on that. And then the connection that they had established and then in the moment opened up a conversation in a new way. And so instead of it being about her not doing her homework, it was about the stress and the need for connection between Mona and her daughter. And this goes along with what a lot of parents tell me, which is how much things really do improve when we are able to resist engagement in the moment. So we're giving our kid time to think or to calm down or to do a sensory activity or maybe just saying, I don't have to have this expectation met right now. I'm just going to let it go and try it again later. And Dr. Delhook brings up the iceberg analogy again. And she says, quote, what I thought was the most important issue, confront her on homework avoidance, turned out to be the tip of the iceberg with her stress and need for connection and warmth from me below the waterline. 